invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Romans, chapter 3. We're continuing our study through uh, Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Romans, chapter 3. We are in verses 1 through 8 this morning. Sermon title is, We Object Your Honor. And when I first started school at UK, my intent was to go to law school upon graduation, but obviously God had other plans for my life at the time. But some of you all may not know I've got experience uh, as an attorney. In fact, when I was in high school in our civics class, we did a mock trial. It was a custody battle, a court case, and I was the attorney for the father in that trial. And uh, one of our favorite things to do as lawyers in that setting was, of course, to yell out, I object, and pound her fist on the table like they do in, in the movies. Uh, but as we see today in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, he anticipates that the Jews uh, would object to much of what he had to say as Paul was sharing his message as how that we can be made right with God. And as we read this, I think we need to never underestimate the stubbornness of a self-righteous heart, including your own. Each of us like to think that somehow we are good enough, somehow we can do enough to earn God's favor. But Paul tells us that we should never underestimate the stubbornness of the human heart before God. Let me invite you to stand if you're able this morning. We're going to do this out of reverence for the reading of God's holy word. Again, I'm in Romans chapter 3. I'll be starting at verse 1, and the Apostle Paul writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then, if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for the privilege of being here today. We thank you, God, that we have been able to worship you. And, Lord, we continue to do that now as we open up the Bible. We open up your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks, a God who has inspired this written record so that we may come to a source of truth and a, a source of knowledge, a source, a source of power and transformation. That's what we pray today, God. We pray that the power of the Word would be unleashed as the Holy Spirit ministers to us. We pray that uh, if there be anyone here that's never trusted in Christ, we pray that your Spirit will draw them to Jesus today. We pray for the Christian here today, Lord, that we would be challenged and that we would be led and that we would be transformed to become more like Christ in our lives. 
the way we live and the way we treat others. God, the bottom line is we pray today that you would have your way with us as we humbly submit ourselves to the truth and the authority of your revealed word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We've gone through the first two chapters already. We have seen that Paul's message of the good news starts with bad news. To truly appreciate what God has done for us in Christ, we need to understand how we are all condemned before a holy God. And Paul has shown us in the first two chapters that his message indicts not only the Gentiles, but also the Jews. And as we have read in the book of Acts, as Paul went out on his mission trips, typically what he would do when he would go to these towns, he would start in the Jewish synagogues. He would start there, and he would preach the good news of Jesus. And as Paul interacted with the Jews, he also came into contact with their, their questions, with their challenges to his message. And so Paul was no stranger to debate. He was no stranger to standing upon the truth of God and, and providing an answer to the questions that were provided to him. And so as he writes this letter to the church there at Rome, he begins by showing how even the Jews stand condemned before God. And so he anticipates, he anticipates the objections that would come from that. And as he anticipates that, he writes in his defense a, a logical argument as to why the gospel is true. He provides a logical defense, and we must carefully trace the arguments that he provides here. And the first thing that Paul does is point out the obligation of God. As the Jews, according to Paul, stood guilty before God... He anticipates this first question in chapter 3. What advantage has the Jew? Then what advantage? He, he's building off what he already said in chapter 2. In, in, in chapter 2, for example, he ends by saying, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is not that of the flesh, but of the heart by the Spirit. So Paul anticipates the question that would then logically come from the Jews is then what advantage do we even have? And we might anticipate the answer would be none, but Paul shows, first of all, God's obligation is to his favored people. His favored people. He has a covenant love for Israel. He has a desire to save the people of Israel from their sins. And so this leads God to bestow upon this group of people his favor. What is that favor? Paul says the, the Jew has, has great favor, verse 2, in every respect. But first of all, primarily, this is the number one way in which God bestows favor on the Jews. He says they were entrusted, verse 2, with the oracles of God. Of all the people groups on the face of the earth at the time, God chose Abraham and his descendants to be the vehicle by which God would reveal himself to all the nations of the earth. He chose Abraham and his descendants to be his special people, his favored covenant people, so that through them they would receive his saving promises in order to disseminate those promises 
to the other peoples of the earth. They were first of all the recipients of His Word. As we read in the Old Testament, we read all the laws, we read the ways in which God shows who He is. He reveals His character. He reveals His expectations for mankind. He also reveals His love and His grace in the Old Testament. And so God entrusted the Jews to be the recipients of His Word. But there was also a responsibility to His Word. It says literally in verse 2, He entrusted them with these saving promises. They had a stewardship not only to obey the Word of God, but to, to, to continue the Word of God and to share the Word of God with others. It was a responsibility. They were entrusted with this treasure of God's revealed truth, God's saving promises of who He is and how we could be made right with Him. The Jews received that. And Paul said that is the greatest and the foremost benefit of being a Jew, of being God's favored people. But also God's obligations, not only to His people, it's to His faithful promise. His faithful promise. God is morally bound to keep His word. And as Paul says in verse 2, the oracles of God, he's referring to not only just God speaking, but God speaking a true message, a message that will save, a message that will grant eternal life. God has given that to the Jews. He's entrusted them with this saving promise that He would rescue all of those who come to Him and trust in Him. His faithful promise. Then Paul anticipates the response in verse 3. Once again, another question. What then? If some did not believe in these saving promises of God, if some did not believe, if some did not have faith, would their unbelief or their lack of faith nullify the faithfulness of God? If God has entered into this relationship and God has given these promises to save, what about those who don't believe? Does that mean God is going to violate His promise? Paul speaks about in verse 3, first of all, how the Jews, many have, have disbelieved the word. There was disbelieving of these promises. What then if some did not believe? Notice Paul didn't say all. That there were some Jews. In fact, the, the first Christians, Paul himself was a Jew. And so not every Jew had disbelieved the gospel message, but some did. And Paul encountered that as he shared the good news on his mission trips. He says, what if some don't believe? What if some don't have faith? What if some don't receive the gospel message? Does that mean God's promise to save those people, is that promise broken because of disbelieving in the Word, the message of God's Son? And then his response in verse 4, may it never be. Or in some translations, God forbid. It's a strong statement as Paul says, may this never be the case. May God never be accused of unfaithfulness. May God never be accused of breaking His faithful promises. Even though there is disbelieving of the Word and there is disobeying of the Word. Verse 4, rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. 
And notice he said, some don't believe, but every man be found a liar. Paul is indicting not only Jew, but also Gentile in this. That everyone is guilty of disobeying God's laws. That everyone has violated God's moral obligations. Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. There's a contrast between God's faithfulness and man's disobedience. Paul's answer, will God's promises be nullified? May it never be, because God is always faithful, even though man is not. There is disbelief and there is disobedience to the Word, but yet in all of this, God displays His Word. There is the displaying of His Word in verse 4. As it is written, and then he quotes from Psalm 51. This is a psalm where David is confessing his sin to God. It's a psalm where David is acknowledging that he has violated God's laws, that he has transgressed God's Word. And he is acknowledging his guilt before God, and he is, and he is acknowledging God's justice and God's right to condemn and to judge. He writes, "...that you may be justified in your words." In other words, you will keep your word, even in judgment, and you will prevail when you are judged. If anyone tries to judge God for disobedience, it can't happen, because God's promises not only are to save those who come to Him, but God promises to judge also. So His promises to the Jews were not only saving promises, there were also judging promises. Promises to save those who come to Him in faith, but also promises to condemn those who do not believe and do not obey. And as Paul was unpacking the guilt of the Jews back in chapter 2, he said, the very thing that you claim will save you, the law, you are guilty of breaking it. The one thing that you claim is your salvation, you can't even keep that. And he's showing again how God is faithful. Even in His judgment, God keeps His promises. He keeps His word. Even to those who do not come to Him in faith, God still is faithful in His judgments. The obligation of God. No one can accuse God of a breach of contract. Back in 2009, there was a fugitive from Colorado who was found in Kansas. He was on the run from the police. He was guilty uh, or being accused of murder. And, and as he made his way into Kansas, he crashed his vehicle and he needed a place to hide from the police. And so he breaks into the home of a newlywed couple, holds them at knife point. They then, according to the story, earn his trust by offering him Dr. Pepper and Cheetos. Because, hey, why not, you know? Dr. Pepper and Cheetos, and they sit down to watch a movie with this guy. After the guy falls asleep, of course, they escape. They contact the police. The police show up to arrest the guy, and in the process, one of the police officer's guns accidentally discharges, shoots the guy in the back, and he's injured. So what does the guy do? He sues the couple 
forget this, breach of contract. He said they entered into a verbal agreement with him to hide him from people who were chasing him. They entered into a verbal agreement with him that he would offer them money to keep him safe from those who were chasing him. And by turning him over to the police, they violated their contract, they broke their contract, and then he attempted to sue them and, of course, did so unsuccessfully. But as we think about breach of contract, God could never be sued for breach of contract. God is obligated not only to His covenant people, He's obligated to His promises. And His promises, as Paul shows, His righteousness is not only a saving righteousness, and He promises to keep that word, but His word, His righteousness, is also a judging righteousness. So whether God saves or whether God judges, He is faithful to do what He promises that He will do. The obligation of God. Following that, Paul anticipates their objections to the gospel. This idea of the bad news leading to the good news and God's message that all stand condemned before Him. Their objection as the Jews was primarily this. We are God's chosen people. God promised to save Abraham and his seed, and we are Abraham's seed by virtue of our birth, of our ethnicity, of our heritage, of our culture. We are Abraham's descendants, and God has promised to bless Abraham's seed, and that's who we are. We are the Jews. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter if we violate God's laws. God's given us His promise, and so we are good no matter what. And Paul says, no, no, no. God's promise to you was this. God's word was given to you as an opportunity to be saved. And God promises, if you keep my law, you will be saved. So it's an opportunity, but not a guarantee. You see, the point of the law was not to save. The point of the law was to show we can't keep it, to reveal the, the inability of the human heart so that we would be driven to seek God's mercy and find God's grace in our humility. Their objections to the gospel, first of all, God's goodness is attacked. His character is called into question. In verse four, uh, following verse 4, when Paul speaks about God's judging righteousness, they say in verse 5, but... We've got we to try to trace their logic here, okay? If God is faithful in His justice... If that is the case, if, if our unrighteousness, if our disobedience, if our sin demonstrates the righteousness of God in His judgment, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is He? Paul says, I am speaking in human terms. And so to unpack this, uh, question this argument we see first of all the inability of the law we have just spoken about that fact the law cannot save anyone because no one can perfectly keep God's moral commandments none of us no one can aside from Christ there's never been a human being on the face of the earth who has perfectly fulfilled God's laws 
If our unrighteousness, if it's, if it's the case that our, our human hearts are so depraved and we can't keep God's commands, if that's the case, and, and in our, our justice God is shown to be righteous, is God being unfair to judge me? The inability of the law, the integrity of the Lord is called into question. If God's righteousness is demonstrated in his judgments, then is God guilty of unrighteousness? It's not fair. If I can't keep his law, which leads to him judging me, which leads to him being shown righteous, if I can't keep the law, is it fair? Is it fair for God to judge me because there's a command I can't keep? Is the argument they're trying to make. And Paul says it's not the case. Verse 6, once again, the impartiality of God. He is impartial. He will judge anyone who violates His laws. May it never be. Once again, Paul strongly objects to their objection. God forbid, for otherwise, if that was the case, how will God judge the world? In other words, God could not judge anybody if your logic is true. If it's not fair for God to judge anyone who cannot keep His commands none of us can keep his commands, then there would be no such thing as judgment, and we would live in a creation where God would never punish evil. We would live in, in, in a creation where God would allow wickedness to remain unpunished. If their logic was true, if they were following this all the way through, there's no way God could judge anyone. Jew or Gentile. They, they, they say, well, we want a God who, who judges evil, but just not our evil. And Paul says, how will God judge the world if he allows evil to go unpunished? How can God be unrighteous if he's judging unrighteousness? For him not to judge unrighteousness, then he would be unrighteous. But God is good because he does punish evil. That's the impartiality of the Lord. But then following that, we see God's graciousness is attacked. So they're saying, okay, God is shown to be righteous because he punishes us for our evil. So let's just be evil. Let's just sin, because in our sin, God's proven to be righteous. Is that, is that, that's right. That's what we want God to be glorified. So, so Paul, if what you're saying is true, then, then, then let everybody just sin, so that way God could get more glory. It's a mistaken accusation. In verse 7, Paul says, But if through my lie, if through my sin, the truth or the goodness of God is abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? Why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come? Paul says, some accuse us of saying that. By trusting in God's grace and not obedience to the law, by saying that we are saved by faith and not by works, they were accusing Paul of saying, well, we can just sin and, and it doesn't matter. Because because God is, is, is glorified in our sin. 
God is condoning sin according to that logic. And notice what Paul says. It's slanderous what they accuse us of saying. They claim that we say that. The gospel is not a license to sin. And that's a message, quite frankly, that, that we as Baptists sometimes need to be reminded of. You see, we have this doctrine, perseverance of the saints. Some call it once saved, always saved. And according to that mentality, some say, well, if I make a profession of faith and I get baptized and join a church, then I'm saved, I'm not going to hell, and it doesn't matter what I do. The rest of my life I can live whatever way I want to live, but I can base my eternal claim on the fact that I made a public profession of faith and I was baptized. That's exactly what the Jews were trying to argue. We are God's covenant people. We uh, have received God's laws. We, we followed it externally, even the, the, the right, the religious ceremony of circumcision. We've done all that. So now it doesn't matter because we're in. We, we are made. And it doesn't matter what we do or how we live because we're God's people. And some Christians have that same mentality. Why I believe the New Testament teaches perseverance of the saints that if you're truly saved, God will keep you saved to the end. The gospel is never a license to sin. Unholiness is never permitted amongst God's people. God must and will punish sin because God is right to do so. And Paul says we are never excused and we are never encouraged to sin so that God's grace would appear brighter that is presuming on God's grace and that is evil a mistaken accusation and Paul points out there's a moral accountability as he concludes this argument he says in verse 8 their condemnation is just who's he speaking about who is the there in this some would say well it's those who falsely accuse those who slander Paul for what he's teaching and preaching and, and certainly those who do not accept the gospel and those who slander those who preach the gospel yes they will be judged their accusation is just but I believe Paul is also saying those who follow that logic and those who embrace that lifestyle those who, who presume upon the grace of God yes their condemnation those who, who claim a faith, a belief, but yet their behavior does not flow accordingly, yes, their condemnation is just. So yes, your lifestyle, the way you live, your holiness or lack thereof, it does matter. And God's people ought to live like God's people. And those who claim to be God's chosen and yet don't demonstrate that with their lifestyle, their condemnation is just. So as Paul shares this message of the good news, he starts with the bad news. And that includes even the Jews, even the religious folks, even the people that's been raised with a spiritual heritage even those who have access to the promises of God, even those who claim to stand upon the promises of God, there is never a license 
to pursue sin so that God would be glorified in my forgiveness. Never underestimate the stubbornness of a self-righteous heart because the heart is deceitful. Jeremiah 17.9 Above all things, the human heart cannot be trusted. We are entering into, as Marlene pointed out a few minutes ago, this Christmas season as Southern Baptists, we celebrate the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering for International Missions. It was named after one of our very first missionaries to China, Mrs. Lottie, or Miss Lottie Moon. So every year we collect this offering so that everyone around the globe would have the opportunity to hear the saving message of Jesus Christ. We hope and pray that everyone in the world would hear the gospel, receive it, and be saved. But what about the Jews? Does that include the Jews too? Because there are some who believe, well, the Jews are God's covenant people. They're His chosen people, and so it doesn't matter what they do with Jesus. But Paul says, you're wrong. There are some that claim evangelizing Jews is anti-Semitic. That if we ever come to the Jews and say, you must accept Jesus or you're going to hell, there are some that claim that that is hate speech. And that is arrogance to ever call upon them to change their religion and accept Jesus Christ. But as we read the Scriptures, we read even Paul himself was a Jew, claimed to, uh, held fastly to the very message of Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The exclusivity of Christ. Even Jews are held accountable to God's gospel. As we enter into Christmas time, uh, we as Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus, but today also marks the beginning of Hanukkah, the Jewish celebration, sometimes referred to as the Festival of Lights, where they celebrate God's miraculous provision and protection, symbolized through the, the eight days of light that God provided to the Jews. And as we think about that, the festival of lights, need to remember the words of Jesus. John chapter 8, verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not live in darkness, but will have the light of life. Even the Jews whom Jesus was speaking to need the light of life. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So we can summarize all of that in this statement. Jews, without Jesus, will be judged. And folks, there is nothing hateful about that. In fact, the most loving thing any of us could ever do with anyone, regardless if they're Jew or Gentile or whatever their religious affiliation is, the most loving thing we could ever do, even if they object, the most loving thing you and I could ever do is share the good news of Jesus Christ with someone so that they could be made right with God. And that is not by heritage or by religion. It's by a personal, humble relationship with Christ through faith and repentance. Let's pray together.